Again, welcome to Freedom. So glad to see you here today, and thanks again to the worship team. Great job in leading us in worship. Very good stuff. We are uh, currently in a series. Uh, we're halfway through a series that is entitled Paradise Lost and Found. If you haven't been with us this summer, uh, we're camped in the first three and the final three chapters of the Bible. And so we've just finished Genesis 1 through 3, and today we're jumping to the very end of the story. So if you've got your Bible, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open uh, with me to uh, Revelation 19 and 20. And to try and bridge the gap to get to, to where we're headed this morning, I want to start uh, at maybe a, a little bit of a different place. And I, I was saying to our leadership team as we were praying together before the service this morning, it's funny, church people love sermons from the book of Revelation and pastors generally do not. Uh, pastors usually would love to run from the book of Revelation because it, it is you know, a challenging, is a difficult book of the Bible. And uh, we naturally, just church folks, love it because it gives us quite a glimpse of the future and we're all curious about the future. So... I'm glad you're here today. For those who are joining us online, really glad to have you tuned in. And uh, I don't know how many of you are, are students of the prophecies and uh, books like Revelation and Daniel, but uh, we're going to jump into the, the deep end of that today. And just as a starting point, I want to just ask you to, to pause and remember one fundamental thing that uh, can sort of lull us to sleep, and that is the fact that because we only know what we have we only know firsthand what we've experienced so far in this life we naturally fall into a mode of imagining that what we've known so far on earth is just how it's always going to be and that's not the case at all it's key to remember that every one of us are a living soul and spirit that's going to be eternal now you're going to wear out your body but your soul and spirit are going to live forever whether you love Jesus or you don't, whether you go to church or you don't, you're going to live forever. It just won't be in this body. And when you pause to consider how long forever is, that's a really, really long time, you realize that this life truly is just kind of the preamble to the main event. And then when you pause to consider, so what is the big picture going to look like? It helps us to regain perspective that what we read at the very beginning and at the very end of the story, that we're not reading myth, we're not reading allegory or fable, we're reading about the much greater reality. If anything, this life is just kind of the parentheses. You know, this is just the, the testing ground for the main event. And so it's very easy when we start looking at the beginning and the end where we catch a glimpse of what it's going to be like forever and ever for us to go, I don't know about that. That seems kind of weird. That seems kind of way out there. That seems sort of like fantasy or fiction. Well, well, don't let that put you off because understand, you're going to be around forever and it's clearly not going to be in that body. We're wearing these things out. So what we're going to get a glimpse of, it's going to in some ways surprise us when we compare it to life as we know it now. And yet it should either frighten us or excite us to realize what is ahead and we'd better get as Ken was reminding us just now you know we need to be thinking about the end that is ahead but but more than just the end to remember what is beyond the end of, of this life as we know it you know when Jesus was on earth he was always taking the the conversation back to one thing I mean if you had to sum up in just one phrase or one sentence what Jesus was always talking about what was it this isn't a trick question, by the way. Somebody said it. The kingdom of God. You, you can't hardly find a page of the Gospels that doesn't say the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. I mean, every time Jesus opened his mouth virtually, it was to say the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. Everything. I mean, when Jesus initiated his ministry, it says, and he then began to preach, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And from that time forward, he preached the kingdom of God. When Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, what did he tell them to declare? Declare the kingdom of God has come. When he sent out the 72, what did he tell them to say? Tell them the kingdom of God is among you. Everything was about the kingdom of God. Now, 
Everybody in Jesus' day and in Old Testament times in Jewish culture, they were longing for the coming of the kingdom of God. What they failed to understand, and we would have been caught in the same trap that they were, is that the kingdom of God was going to be progressively ushered in. That when the king himself came, when Jesus came to earth, that he would kick open the door to allow the kingdom of God to begin to be ushered in here on earth, but that it would not be fully realized throughout the earth that there would be a period of many, many centuries where the kingdom of God would begin to arrive on earth. And that's why he taught his followers, among other things, when you pray, pray, Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. And so we're living in this in-between time where Jesus has initiated the kingdom, where he is ushering in the kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus is recognized as Lord and King over everyone and everything, and his will is the final word on everything. But it also ushers in a kingdom of justice, one of compassion, one where, where we care about people who are oppressed and we seek to lift them up, where healing is made available to those who are suffering. I mean, we could just go on and on where needs are met in the kingdom of God. Jesus has been ushering this in through the church, but there are going to be a couple of key moments in the future where this thing is just finished up. Jesus came physically to the earth to initiate this. Jesus is physically on the earth in the form of the church, which is his body on the earth ushering in the kingdom of God, but he is going to physically, tangibly come back to earth and he's going to wrap this thing up. And so now as we jump to the final three chapters, we catch a glimpse of what that looks like. And it is, it is beyond the wildest uh, thriller, ad- adventure, action movie that you've ever seen. What we're going to read today is, is the biggest action stuff you'll ever read in all the pages of Scripture. Now, we're going to be in Revelation 20 today, but it doesn't make sense to go into Revelation 20 without offering some explanation and having to read a portion of Revelation 19 because we're going to be right in the middle of the action when we start chapter 20. So let me offer some explanation for context to start into Revelation 21. We, we know that in the future that the next major event that has been prophesied that hasn't taken place yet. I mean, this is really significant to realize that there is nothing we can discern in the Scriptures in terms of of prophecy of what has to be fulfilled before these climactic events of Jesus' return and all the things that we read about in Revelation. There is nothing left unfulfilled that we're aware of. I mean, think about that. That that is really significant. The, The next major event ushering us into the events of Revelation could happen today. It might not happen for another thousand years. We don't know. But it could happen today and God wouldn't have left anything unfulfilled. So the next major event that we're aware of in Revelation is what we refer to as the the period of the Great Tribulation. Now Revelation just scares the daylights out of a lot of people for good reason because the biggest chunk of the book of Revelation from chapters 6 through 19, that whole span of 14 chapters is about one thing. It is about the seven-year period in the future that we call the Great Tribulation. During that time, what's happening on earth is going to make just a gigantic shift. For 2,000 years, we've seen Christianity advance, and it continues to advance, by the way. In spite of what some gloom and doom-minded people would say, the kingdom of God continues to advance. Jesus is is retaking what is his, and he's accomplishing it through the church. Be encouraged that that is happening. The kingdom is marching forward. It continues to grow. And humanity, by the way, is continuing to become more and more Christian. I don't just mean in terms of numbers. We as a culture, we as a civilization, I mean globally, have have come to reflect gradually over time more and more the heart and character of Christ. Dinesh D'Souza in his his book, What's So Great About Christianity, does a wonderful job of unpacking this idea. If you've never read it, I would commend it to you. Dinesh D'Souza, What's What's So Great About Christianity. It'll help you to see how over the span of 2,000 years, it is the kingdom of God, it is Christianity that is changing what's happening on the earth in a positive way. And we are making progress. But there is coming a point in time in the future, it could be very soon or, or in God's timetable, maybe not, but where there's going to be a gigantic shift, and for seven years, this little window of time, 
things are going to change drastically. Evil for seven years is going to seem to just completely take control. And on earth, it will truly feel that way. The first three and a half years of that, the first half of the tribulation, is going to be a season of, of some prosperity. And then something is going to happen midway through that, and there's going to be a shift. And the final three and a half years are going to be nothing but pain, misery, suffering, and judgment. The wrath of God is going to be poured out in ways that have never been paralleled at any point in history. Now, a lot of people, or, or, or a few people, have made a lot of money off of unpacking exactly how this is going to unfold. And a lot of you have got opinions about that. And, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way. I don't care what your opinion is about how that unfolds. And all I mean by that is there's plenty of room in here for us to disagree about this. The, the biggest disagreement that people have over how this tribulation period is going to unfold revolves around the concept of are you pre-trib, are you mid-trib, or are you post-trib? And if you're going, what on earth are you talking about? All that is is Christian code for, for one fundamental question of the seven years of, of evil being in control and it being an awful season of, of suffering, pain, and, and murder for a lot of the people who belong to God during this season and the wrath of God being poured out especially in the second half of that season the big question then becomes does God remove the church all of those who are still alive who are followers of Christ when this period begins does he take all Christians out up into heaven at the beginning of that see there are a lot of people who believe that that's called a pre-trib rapture a pre-tribulation rapture the whole idea is that Jesus is going to come and just in a moment of time snatch out all Christians and that that would be what causes evil to be able to take control and it will usher in a whole different season in human history. If you read the Left Behind series, if you watch the movies, it's based on that idea that, that there is a rapture at the beginning that pulls the church out. Lots of Christians believe that. And that may be how it happens. There are others who hold to a mid tribulation idea and that is that Christians are here during the first half of the tribulation and that the thing that, that causes this flip from prosperity to awful suffering in the second half is going to be that the church is removed there in the middle of this, this period of tribulation and then there are others who believe that the church is going to be here throughout the entire tribulation and will have to endure the whole thing and there are a lot of Christians who believe that so that's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib ideas of, of when that takes place and I don't care which of those that you hold to. And you could make a, a defense for any of those positions. The, the middle one is the harder one to defend from Scripture, but you could make a really good biblical defense for either before or after. We're all rooting for it to be before. All of us want that. I'll be the first to sign up for that. I spent most of my life believing that. Right now, I wouldn't bet the farm on any of those being right. I mean, this is just one of those things that is, it's going to be a mystery. And I, and I know some people right now are probably getting a little bit up saying, but what about this and what about that? Oh, look, I understand the scriptures that would seem to point to this position or that position. The truth of the matter is you could make a biblical defense of more than one point and there's room for us to disagree. I hope we get pulled out at the beginning. I suspect that we won't, but I would prefer that we did. Whether we do or not, if the church is pulled out at the beginning, there are going to be a lot of people who recognize, uh-oh, it was true, I was wrong, and now I'm left behind, and a lot of people are going to come to faith as a result of that. One way or another, there are going to be a lot of Christians during this time of tribulation. I'm not here today to preach on the tribulation, but you need to understand it to make sense out of what's going to happen next. All of that said, regardless of what you believe about, whether we're pulled out before or in the middle or we have to endure all of it, at the conclusion of the seven years is going to be one final great battle. Everybody here, whether you've grown up in the church or you haven't, you've heard about this great battle. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. It will be what, is, what appears to be is going to be the, the most gigantic human conflict ever in the history of the world where all of the armies that are loyal to the leaders that Satan has installed rise up to, to conquer what is what remains, at least in that part of the world, around the holy city, the, the final gathering of the people of God, and it's, it's an attempt to annihilate what remains of the people of God. 
And it's going to look like the ultimate impossible scene that you've ever seen in any movie. You know, all, all great movies come to a, a point where it just looks like evil's going to win. There's no way out. And then somehow, in good movies, and good books, then somehow something saves the day. And what we're about to read is how God is going to send Jesus at what looks like the last, just most impossible moment that nothing could ever save the day. And in that moment, Jesus is going to re-enter history physically, visibly as the rider on a white horse. And he is going to be at the head of all the armies of heaven, descending to earth for a final battle. And now you've got to bear in mind, the book of Revelation, like Daniel, it's apocalyptic literature. And so apocalyptic writing, is, it's very uh, rich in symbolism. There's a lot of stuff that's literal in Revelation, but you have to recognize there are things that are symbolic and there are other scriptures that will give us keys to what those symbols are. One of the passages we're about to read is going to talk about the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth that's going to do unspeakable damage to his enemies. It's not that there's this metal blade coming out of the mouth of Jesus. The word is clear that Jesus' spoken word, that the word of God is the sword of the sphere. Jesus speaks worlds into existence and he also speaks the destruction of his enemies. So understand that some of what we're about to read is going to be that kind of imagery, but it's, it's about literal destruction that, that's going to happen. So we're going to pick up with that having set the stage in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, as the armies that Satan has pulled together have surrounded the people of God, and it looks like there is no way out. And then John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. It's a, it's a symbolic picture that all authority now belongs to Jesus. He had a name written that no one knows except himself, and he wore a robe dipped in blood. It's, again, it's a picture of the fact that this is the king who has suffered and died, but who lives again. He had a robe that had been dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. Can you just imagine the armies of heaven? They took part in the original conflict when Lucifer and the one-third of the angels of heaven that rebelled against the authority of God and sought to overthrow the rule of God. There was, the Scripture says, there was a war in heaven. Jesus says, I saw Satan when he was cast out and he fell to earth. I saw that happen. Can you imagine the angels of heaven who have been watching the events of history for thousands of years they watched evil as it pursued jesus as it repeatedly tried to kill jesus they had to watch as jesus was arrested as he was brutalized tortured and murdered on a hill outside of jerusalem can you imagine the power that these beings have and how they were saying oh father give us the word let us step in let us finish this thing and the father's saying not yet not yet but a day is coming when the armies of evil are surrounding the people of God and Jesus is going to say, boys, today is the day. Saddle up. That's where they are. Can you imagine the feeling of power unleashed? The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen and a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it and he will rule them with an iron rod. This is no longer the gentle, meek, suffering servant this is the reigning king and he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the almighty and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh king of kings and lord of lords every king on earth every lord every master will look to him and go oh that's my king he is the king he is the lord he is the master and then I saw an angel standing in the sun. 
And he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of the horses, of horses of their rider and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. And then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. When he's referencing the beast, and, and he's also about to reference and the, the false prophet, these are, are leaders and beings that Satan has installed in power to, to lead this evil uprising. But the beast was taken prisoner. Along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. And he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image with these signs. In the earlier chapters, we've been told that during the tribulation period, those who are willing to follow in this wicked movement have to declare their allegiance and show it by having a mark put on their forehead or on their hands that that declares that they are forever loyal to the beast, ultimately to Satan. And only the followers of Christ are the ones who say, I I won't do that. And as a result, they're going to be cut off, and many of them are going to be killed because of their faith. And so he goes on to say, Both of them, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is hell. And the rest were killed with a sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. In this battle, it's not going to be about tanks or bombs or nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction. It's going to be about the spoken word of Jesus because he has the power to speak things into existence and he has the power destroy with his spoken words and by his spoken words all of his enemies are going to be destroyed and now we transition to chapter 20 verse 1 the tribulation has just ended armageddon is over and now he says then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand now just so we're clear The abyss is not hell. The abyss is not the lake of fire. We've heard of the abyss before in my quiet times this week. You'll be reading it this this coming week. You remember when Jesus had just crossed over the Sea of Galilee and he lands on the shores of Gadara and there is a man that's known as Legion. He's he's full of a bunch of demons and he's got superhuman strength and he runs around naked in, in the tombs. And when Jesus has this confrontation where he's about to cast out the spirits, but the spirits are speaking back in response. Do you remember what the demons begged? Please do not throw us into the abyss now ahead of time. You know why that that plea is important? Because it is a reminder that demons, these fallen angels that follow Satan, they know the rest of the story. They are very intelligent beings, and they know what awaits them. They know the next phase in this plan is that after they have all this influence and control and bring so much suffering that they're going to be cast into this place of suffering for what we're about to find out is a very long span of time. Satan himself, at the end of the tribulation, is going to be put into the abyss, apparently with all of the demons who have followed him. So the angel sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Thank you so much. He bound him for a thousand years, and he threw them into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that they would deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed, and after that he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones, and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted uh, the mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. He's referencing all of the multitudes of Christians who were killed during the seven years of tribulation. We, I mean, there are a lot of people in our lifetime 
that are dying because of their faith in Christ. But, but the numbers are going to become staggering during those seven years. And so he's saying all of those people are, are raised after these seven years of suffering. And then verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Those who are outside the family of God for a thousand years are not going to be raised. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, for the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, here's the most surprising thing that we'll read today. Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. This is just a a reference back to the Old Testament. It's just a symbolic picture of of the pagan nations that are going to be formed against the people of God one final time. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city, and then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, this is hell, where the beast and the false prophet are, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. But we're not done. And then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. That one is Jesus. The Scripture says that to Jesus alone belongs judgment. That God the Father is not the one who's going to be doing the judging. He has assigned Jesus the task of judging all of humanity. Earth and heaven fled from His presence. And no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books, plural, Books were opened, but then another book was opened, singular, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And we'll stop there. We'll pick up chapter 21 next week. Would you agree a lot just went down in a chapter and a half? That's a lot going on. Now, I realize whether you're familiar or unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, that's a lot to to swallow in one gulp, isn't it? A lot going on. But I'll tell you, the good thing is that what we're reading about, it's not difficult to understand. It's it's there. It is an open revelation that we're supposed to really learn from. And there's some very important stuff for us to wrestle with today. So I want to just walk through this. There's six things that I want to say to you, just unpacking piece by piece what John has said. God is giving John, this is the Apostle John, a glimpse of the future. He gets to see these things as if he's just jumped forward in time. And now we want to back up and just unpack what God has revealed to us about the future. So if you want to take your outline and follow along, six things that we need to notice that are important for us. And the first one is just simply this, that God has an appointed time when he will defeat evil and restore order on the earth. Aren't you glad? We need to continue to do everything that we can to help usher in the kingdom of God to share the good news of Jesus and how people can can come into the family of God, bringing justice, bringing compassion, doing what we can to usher in the kingdom of God, but understand that there is coming a day when God is going to advance this thing at an exponential rate and that a big part of that is is going to be that He is, is going to destroy evil and take it out of the equation. And we can rest in that fact. He describes this day is coming where the... The fleshly, human enemies of God are going to be destroyed at Armageddon. And where key players that Satan has installed are going to be thrown into hell. And Satan himself and the demons that are causing so much of the chaos on earth today are going to be put into the abyss. God has a timeline for this. Every generation seemingly for the last 2,000 years has said, It's happening in our generation. It's got to be in our lifetimes. 
And it may be in our lifetimes. It may not. It may be 500 years before He does it. But we can rest in the fact that ultimately the kingdom of light wins. The kingdom of God prevails. And God will destroy evil. The second thing that we see unpacked here is following the first resurrection, Jesus and His followers will reign on a peaceful earth for a span of 1,000 years. Notice again in verse 6. He says, And I saw the souls of those who had been killed because they were faithful to the truth of Jesus and the message of God. They came back to life and ruled with Christ for 1,000 years. Now, if, if that's all that we had, we would probably come to the conclusion that only martyrs get to reign during the 1,000 years, but that's not all that he says. He goes on to say, The rest of the dead didn't, did not live again until the 1,000 years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Great blessings belong to those who share in the first resurrection. They are God's holy people. It's, it is God's people who are raised. Apparently not just the, the martyrs, but those who belong to God. It, if Jesus' return is after we have died, apparently we're going to be raised. And we're going to spend a thousand years reigning with Jesus on earth as God intended it. What's the title of the series? Paradise Lost and Found. The title of today's message is Paradise Restored in Eden. It's catching just a glimpse of life as it's supposed to be on an earth where things are in order. It's, it's the way that it's supposed to be. Death isn't even a part of, of the equation when we started out. What we read about humanity, Adam and Eve have a level of intimacy with each other and with God that we can't even fully comprehend. Everything is as it should be. And when you get to this thousand years, it's on this earth and everything is put back in order. The kingdom has come. And we're not in heaven yet. We're on earth. And Jesus is physically on the earth. But He's not, he, he's not the, the gentle rabbi that's roaming around a little part of the world in Palestine. He is the reigning king. And he'll be here on earth with us for a span of a thousand years. Now, it's a very curious thing to me that a lot of modern Christians and some theologians want to just discount the whole concept of, we typically refer to this as the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. And say, well, we don't really know about that. But, you know, It only shows up in just this one part of the Bible in Revelation. So, I don't know. There's a lot about the tribulation, but, you know, can we really believe that there's going to be a thousand-year reign? We absolutely can. Revelation mentions it six times that we're going to reign for a thousand years with Jesus here on the earth. But here's the other thing, which, by the way, I mean, how many times does the Bible have to say something before it's actually true? I mean, some of the most important things that we believe in the Bible are there one time. The thousand-year reign of Christ is in Revelation six times. But just as importantly, or maybe even more importantly, is this thing that we need not overlook. Every Old Testament prophet, every prophet, major and minor, describes this thousand-year reign. They don't call it the millennium. That's, that's what they're describing. People in Jesus' day, there was pretty much nobody on earth looking for Jesus to come and do what he did. I mean, Paul talks about how God's plan unfolding in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, that it was the great mystery of God. It was the secret plan of God. Even the angels of heaven didn't know the plan of God. Nobody could conceive of this. And God intentionally embedded his secret plan in all of the Old Testament prophecies. But here's what he did that nobody recognized. Now we see it because we live between these two great events that all of the description of the day of the Lord or of the coming of His Messiah, the first coming and the second coming, all of these prophecies are blended together in the Old Testament. So when you read the Old Testament prophets, you read it as if it all were just one event, and it's not. The prophets describe the suffering servant and, and what he's going to do for us. It is the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago for the first time. There's over 300 very specific prophecies about Jesus and what he would do when he first came to earth. But they're intentionally not pulled apart and, and described as, okay, here's the first coming and here's the second coming because God didn't want his enemy to know 
how this was going to be done. He didn't want his enemy to be able to thwart the plan where God would take on flesh and live as an infant, as an adolescent, as an adult. He needed Jesus protected. And so all of these are embedded together with prophecies about the fullness of the kingdom of God and the final coming of Jesus where all the enemies of God are destroyed. Every Old Testament prophet described what life would be on earth during the millennium where Jesus would set up an everlasting kingdom and his rule would never be overthrown. These prophecies make sense to us now. They couldn't make sense when people didn't know who Jesus was yet. I'll give you two examples. Isaiah 11, one of the most classic descriptions of life on earth during the millennium. Isaiah says, Then wolves will lie at peace with lambs. Calves, lions, and bulls will all live together in peace, and a little child will lead them. Is that not just an amazing picture? It's a, a recognition of the fact that you remember what we just studied in Genesis, how when mankind sinned, there was a curse that entered in, not just to humanity, but all of creation was a part of the curse. The earth itself suffers under the curse of sin. And the scriptures speak of how all of creation groans, longing for its redemption and for the full revelation of the sons and daughters of God. It wants to be set free and be able to be what it was intended to be and be returned to peace where calves can lie down with lions and bulls and a little child can lead them and be safe because none of them are going to do harm to each other. Bears and cattle will eat together in peace, and all their young will lie down together and not hurt each other. I love this next part. Even snakes will not hurt people. It's going to take me a few years to get used to that. Babies will be able to play near a cobra's hole and put their hands into the nest of a poisonous snake. And here is one of the most amazing lines in the entire Bible. People will stop hurting each other. Nobody's going to cheat on each other. Nobody's going to lie to and deceive one another anymore. There's not going to be any more racism. There's not going to be any more prejudice. No more of, of the kind of news that we heard this weekend. There won't be any more wall shootings. There won't be any more school shootings. There won't be any more genocides because people will stop hurting each other. People on my holy mountain will not want to destroy things because they will know the Lord. And the world will be filled with, will be full of the knowledge about him like the sea is full of water. Ooh, don't you long for that day. We may live 70, 80, 90 years or more with the joy and suffering that's all tangled together in what we know of his life today. But we get a thousand years on this earth where everything is put in order. Now, for those of you who are are the analytical ones who are trying to figure out, oh my goodness, we're going to have an overcrowded earth. How are we going to do this? It's The numbers aren't going to work out. Remember, the earth is going to be restored to the way that it was. It's going to be a naturally productive planet. We're not going to fight to, to bring food from up from the earth. God's going to make provision like we're back in Eden again. It's going to be such a place of abundance. Daniel, in one of his prophecies about this, this time in Daniel seven fourteen, speaking of Jesus, Daniel referred to Jesus as the Son of Man. It's, the, it's Jesus' favorite designation to use of himself. It says of the Son of Man that he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. And his rule is eternal. It will never end, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. This is about the millennial reign. This is about the kingdom having fully come. So there's a thousand-year period of peace. Evil is laid away, is, is locked away, and there's truly peace on earth. But then the most shocking thing in the entire book of Revelation is the next truth, the third truth, that following the millennium, Satan will be briefly released to lead one final violent rebellion. John says, beginning in verse 7, When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations in every corner of the earth, and he will gather them together for battle, a mighty army that's as numerous as the sands of the shore. Now, a bunch of questions come to mind when we read that. One of them is, who on earth is he leading in this rebellion? Well, 
we're making some assumptions here, but I don't think we're, we're far-fetched in this assumption. Remember, we're not in heaven yet. We're, we are among the resurrected. We are among the family of God. And it would appear that during those thousand years, we're still going about life. We're going about life where Jesus Himself is King and He's reigning on the earth and it's, it's a significantly different life, but it's pretty safe to assume we're still having babies, and grandbabies and great-grandbabies and there are new generations coming along who didn't witness everything that, that happened in the tribulation and who didn't witness a lot of the things that we've just read about. They've, they've been born into a world where Jesus is the King. And we would just assume that they're just all going to go, Woo, we love having Jesus as King. We love having Him as our Lord. But there's going to come a time where they have an option to follow another leader. And apparently a bunch of them are going to take part in that rebellion. And we could read that and go, I just can't believe anybody would ever do that. If you've been under Jesus as your Lord and King, that you would ever choose to follow somebody else. I want to tell you, people still do that. Do you remember the original revolt that took place? The angels of heaven who knew Jesus as their Lord, who knew God as the, the Father and the Creator, and a third of them took part in a rebellion that said, we'd rather be in charge than have Him in charge. And what we have on earth is a reflection of that same kind of rebellion after living for generations under Jesus physically reigning on earth in a time of peace, a whole bunch of people, a bunch, are going to take part in a gigantic rebellion that becomes a violent rebellion against the rule of Jesus and against the people of God. Now, I know one of the most fundamental questions that we have is, why in the world would God ever let Satan loose for one final just rant and tear on the earth? And I'll make this deal with you. If you can answer me why God ever let Satan on loose, loose on earth in the first place, I'll tell you why he let it seem loose on earth in the second place. Because the bottom line is we don't know the answer to either one. The most unanswerable question in all of theology and human history is, is the question of evil. Why is there evil? Why, why does a, a righteous, good God allow for the presence of evil on earth? And the bottom line is this. For all the long-headed philosophical answers that we could give, we just don't really know. I mean, I, I could stand here and give you my thoughts on that. You wouldn't be better off at the end of it. We don't fully know why God allows for an extended season for the presence of evil. It, it is interesting to, to recognize that the presence of evil certainly allows for a dynamic that really gives us a choice. And in order for there to be love, there has to be a choice. I mean, if, if we don't have a choice, then we're just robots who have to serve God. We have a choice between rebellion and loving and belonging to God. And apparently, the generation that comes after Christ returns, all those subsequent generations in the millennium, are going to be faced with the same choice that we've been faced with. We can choose evil, we can choose selfishness, we can choose rebellion, or we can choose to, to yield to Jesus. The angels of heaven made a choice. Humanity has to make a choice. Humanity past and present has had to make a choice. Humanity in the future is going to be confronted with a final choice. Satan, one more time, is going to be loosed, and he's going to lead in a final rebellion. Whether that makes sense to us or not, it's coming Satan will once again deceive them, and there's going to be this gigantic conflict. But it's not going to be, once again, like Armageddon. This isn't Armageddon, but it is very similar. When the battle lines are drawn up, and this vast, vast army is gathered to go to war against the people of God, fire from heaven will come down on the attacking armies and consume them. And in that moment... Satan, who has deceived humanity for thousands of years, will finally and eternally be thrown into the lake of fire and burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And they know it's coming. It is decreed by God. They will never appear again. We'll never have to deal with 
with the torment and the suffering and the temptation that they bring into the equation. Isn't that good news? I'm grateful for that part. The fourth truth is this. Unbelievers at this point in time will be raised to life to stand before God and be judged. Now, there's already been one resurrection. When did that happen? I think right now we're all dealing with information overload. When did the first resurrection happen? At the end of the tribulation prior to the millennium. The people of God have been raised so that they get to take part in this 1,000 years of finally seeing life on earth with paradise restored with life as it should be. Those who don't belong to God, they miss out on that altogether. But after the 1,000 years, when this final conflict is dealt with in a moment of time, now all of those who have not yet been raised will come to life again. He says in verses 11 and 12, Then I saw a great white throne, and the one who was sitting on it, earth and the sky ran away from him and disappeared. I want you to just let that verse sink in for a moment. Jesus is now appearing in all of his fullness, in all of his glory, and in the presence of Jesus, not veiled in flesh, but the fullness of the Godhead fully expressed. Creation itself, the universe, runs from His presence. Not because He's cruel, not because He's wicked, but because of the greatness of His glory. I don't think we often contemplate the greatness of God. The Scriptures say that that He dwells in clouds and thick darkness. I'm pretty sure that, that those are present to shield us because in, in our current condition, we can't cope with the greatness of His glory. The Old Testament describes God as a tempest. To be near His glory is like being in the middle of a storm in some respects. It's so overwhelming. I mean, do you, have you ever just been out in the middle of a storm? Have you ever just gone out in the thick of a hurricane when you realize in that moment there's so much more power around me than is in me? I could be swept away in a moment by a power so much greater than me. The presence of God is like a tempest. And I know I'm chasing a rabbit, but this one's worth chasing. At some point, we need to let go of our comfortable, modern, friendly, Jesus is my buddy, He's my pal, He's just my best friend idea of God and recognize we serve a God who is so great, who is so powerful, whose glory is so overwhelming, there is no need for sun or moon in heaven because His radiance lights all of heaven. And from His presence, earth and sky flee. Do you feel the weight of that? This is the God that we call on. This is the God that we struggle to come up with with adequate words of praise to say, God, you're, you're good. You're, there's a reason we call you holy because you're other. You're beyond. You're not just one of us. You're not the big guy upstairs. You're so beyond us and yet you enter into us. You enter into time and space and history. That fullness of Christ steps in. And from this point forward, nothing is the same. The universe as we know it is gone. As we move into chapter 21 next week, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, there's a new Jerusalem, and the dimensions of that far exceed anything we know of the universe today. But in the interim, as we're moving from what we know into what is beyond, we all, the family of God and those who rejected Christ, we all stand before the great white throne. Earth and sky flee from His presence, but all those made in His image stand in His presence. And Jesus describes in vivid detail 
in the final 15 verses of Matthew 25 exactly what happens at that time. Jesus describes the final judgment. And he says, On that day at the great white throne, all of humanity will be divided into two groups, the sheep and the goats. I'm sorry, y'all are on my left, so y'all are the goats today. But he says, On his right, the sheep, those who belong to the family of God. On his left, those who do not. John is describing his perspective. He gets to see the judgment. And what he describes there lines up with what Jesus shares, and it is so incredibly sobering. Brings us to the fifth truth. And that is that all who rely on their good works at the judgment will be cast eternally into the lake of fire. He says in verses 12 and following, And I saw those who had died, great and small, standing before the throne. Will you just pause for a moment to begin to try and take that in? Every human who has ever lived in history is assembled before the throne of God. Gandhi will be there. Napoleon will be there. Osama bin Laden will be there. Hitler will be there. Saddam Hussein will be there. George Washington will be there. Aristotle and Socrates will be there. Every great thinker, every great leader, every mass murderer, every human being, whether high or low, will be assembled before God. Everyone has been raised. And then he says, some books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, the book of life. And the people were judged by what they had done. I think it has been best described as at the judgment, those who do not belong to the family of God will be judged from, I think it's rightly called, from the books of works. That there are many books that will be opened on the day of judgment. And the books of works will be used in the judgment of those who are about to be cast into hell for all of eternity. Now here's the thing that is so striking about this scene to me. In the course of the last few decades, I have asked more people than I could begin to count what I think is a great question. It's a great transition in a conversation to take it to a really deep level to say, what do you understand that it takes for a person to go to heaven? That is a great question, isn't it? I mean, it just cuts to the core of things. What does it take for a person to get to go to heaven? And the vast majority of people that I've ever asked that question of over the years, in some shape or form, will tell you, to go to heaven, you've got to do more good than bad. You've got to help people. You've got to do good. You've got to try your best. Blah, 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 blah. In some shape or form, what they describe is a picture of the judgment that is like a balance scale. Everybody's seen a balance scale. It's got two little plates hanging by chains on each side of the balance scale. You put weights on one side, and you put whatever you're weighing out to measure against it on the other. And the whole concept is our lives are like a big balance scale. And on the one plate, we've got all the bad things that we've done. And on the other plate, we've got all the good things that we've done. And when we stand before God, we just need to make sure we've done more good than bad. And if we have, we get to go into heaven. And that picture, that idea came straight from the pit of hell. Revelation reminds us again and again that Satan is the deceiver. He's always tried to deceive the nations. This is one of his chief deceits. To try and lead us to the conclusion that if you'll just be a good person, that at the judgment that you'll be okay. But I want to tell you what John reveals about the final judgment. That at the final judgment, when the books of works are read, everybody whose story is being recorded in the books of works goes to hell. That those who go to hell are judged by their works and every single one come up short. Jesus describes this in Matthew 25 and you know how he describes it? He says, I'll look at them and I'll say, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was sick and in prison and you never visited me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And they'll say back to me, Lord, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? When did we ever see you sick or in prison or naked? When did we ever see you like that? And he says, every time you saw any one of the least of these, my brothers, other human beings who were suffering and you didn't do anything about it, you did that to me. Depart. 
into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And tragically, it wasn't made for you, but that's where you go. Now, I understand, as you hear that, as we hear the words of Jesus, there are a bunch of us as Christians going, wait, no, 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 that's a work salvation. That can't be it. That can't be what he really said. It's exactly what he said, and it's not a work salvation. Here's the, the thing you have to recognize about the judgment of God and about the justice of God in the end. Let, let me put it to you as a question. When people don't get into the family of God, when people are cast into hell at the final judgment, is it going to be... Because they rejected Christ and didn't accept Him as their Lord and Savior, or is it going to be because of their moral imperfection, because of their sin, their, their sin by design and their willful choices of sin? Which is it? The answer is C, all of the above. You see, you can communicate it either way. And he says, at the final judgment... All of these people who are just counting on being good enough. I tried hard. I tried to be a good person. And they're going to, it's all going to be recorded right there in, in the book of works. Yeah, yeah. We, remember that? Remember that day you helped a lady across the street? Remember that day you gave some money? Remember that day you, you bought some groceries? You did some toys for Todd? You, remember all of it? It's all right here. But guess what else is here? Every time you were selfish, every time you ignored people in need, every time you rejected God's invitation of salvation and forgiveness, every time you did the wrong thing, that's right there in the book of works too. And when it's all read and when it's all said and done, it's not a balance scale. If you were counting on works, the final word is condemnation. It is judgment forever. There is no reprieve. There is no out. And yes, that should make us shudder. If we're counting on good works, we need to hear again the words of Paul to Titus. It is not because of righteous things that we had done, but it is because of His mercy. It is through His mercy that He saved us. The words of Isaiah, Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. If you're counting on being good enough to get in, I promise you, you won't. If it were possible to get there by that plan, God would have never sacrificed His Son. The books of works are about declaring the justice of God. Yep, noticed everything that you've ever done, and you've come up short. Books closed. Go into the judgment prepared for the devil and his demons. But that's the end of the story for only that part of humanity. There's one final truth. That those whose names are in the book of life will be welcomed into their reward. It says there, it's interesting, it says there is another book, singular book, opened. Doesn't have to be a gigantic book. Doesn't take a stack of books. You know why? Because at the, at the great white throne of judgment, for those of us who belong to God, in that judgment, there's only one thing that needs to be written down. And that is your name. Yes, there is another judgment in which our deeds will enter into the equation. We'll get to that on another day where we'll be rewarded according to the things that we've done. But in terms of whether you're in or not, it has nothing to do with your deeds. It's just a matter of whether your name is recorded in the book. Yes, hallelujah. Jesus says again in Matthew 25, Then the king will say to the godly people on his right, Come, my Father has great blessings for you. The kingdom that He promised you is now yours. It has been prepared for you since the world was made. Come and enjoy forever. And here's the amazing thing. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. There doesn't have to be a long list of credits and accomplishments after your name. So how do you get your name written in the book of life? How do you get into the family of God? John, the same one who's writing all of these things down, when he wrote his gospel account, he spelled it out at the very beginning, in the opening chapter. He made that part clear to us. He said, yet to as many as received him, referencing Jesus, yet to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Two key words. Believe and receive. 
It's so simple that Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you'll never get in the kingdom. Children can accept things just that, that they don't fully understand. They just take them by faith. Your, your mommy, your daddy, you said it, so it must be so. And Jesus said, you have to become like a child to accept this. First of all, you're going to have to believe. You have to believe this incredible message that I am God's sinless, perfect son. You have to believe the truth that I came to earth not just to show you how life is supposed to be, not just to set a good example for you, though I did that, but I have come to suffer and die in your place. The weight of all of your sins, all of your selfishness, all of your rotten choices completely laid on me so that when I suffered and died, I took all of the punishment that your sins deserved. And you're going to have to believe that that was enough. You're going to have to believe the impossible truth that God demonstrated that that was enough, that my sacrificial death was enough by raising me from the dead. You're going to have to believe that. And then there's a second part to it. It's not enough that you believe the facts about that because those things happened. But you're going to have to receive. You're going to have to receive forgiveness that you don't deserve but that God wants to give. It's yours for the asking. But you're going to have to receive more than forgiveness. You're going to have to receive the person behind the forgiving act. You're going to have to receive Jesus not just as your Savior, but as the King revealed in the passage that we read today. He comes to be your Lord. See, He didn't come just to get you in the club. He didn't come just to get you in the church. He came to make you a part of a family and a movement that is transforming humanity, that is changing the course of history. And you've got to sign on for something that's way bigger than just a little prayer that doesn't affect the way that you live your life. You are receiving somebody who now is going to gradually take over every part of your life who's going to set things back in order. He's going to shake things up because He's going to take somebody who used to live probably for yourself, and He's going to turn you into somebody who now cares about the things that Jesus cares about, and suddenly things that used to not bother you, maybe you used to not care at all that there are people who are dying because they don't have access to clean water, and you didn't care before, and you're going to find yourself caring about it. You're going to find people who have, who are just being ravaged by diseases that are easily treated, or these people are easily inoculated against, and you didn't give a rip before, and you're going to find yourself caring because when you receive Jesus, He starts messing with your heart. He starts causing you to care about things you just didn't give a rip about. And you live differently. And you don't get into heaven because of all that you did to cure diseases and meet needs. You start doing those things because you're a child of heaven. Because the King of heaven now lives in you. You've got to believe, but you've got to receive. And so the concluding question today is really, really simple. Very straightforward. Do you believe... And have you received? Do you belong? When the day of judgment comes, where's your confidence? Is it about the good things that you've done and how hard you've tried? If so, I hope you are scared to death right now because you should be. I hope you're shaken to the core of your being. If you're watching and listening online and your, your confidence has always been, I'm a good person, I'm, I'm as good as my neighbors, doing better than most. I hope you're terribly disturbed right now. Or is your confidence not at all in what you've done, but completely in what Christ has done and knowing that you have trusted Him, that you've asked for His forgiveness, that you have received Him as the Lord and King of your life? If you haven't done that, what would stop you from today making the most important decision you'll ever make in your life? Would you all join me as we go to Him together in prayer? God, we pause to honor You. You are the everlasting One. Jesus, we honor You. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the judge. And we bow our heads before You.
We acknowledge that you are beyond us and yet you choose to to come and interact with us and to live in us. I pray that by the voice of your Spirit you would bring conviction and clarity about where we stand with you today. If you realize that you're not at a place where you know you have right standing with God, that that you can't say with any confidence that you've received the forgiveness of God and that Jesus is your Lord, that you've received Him in your life, if you want to do that, you don't have to take a class, you don't have to prep for that. It just begins with a simple childlike response. I want to invite you to just, from, from your heart, you don't even have to say it aloud for God to hear it, but would you just pray a simple prayer with me? If this expresses what you want to say, would you just say this from your own heart? Jesus, I believe in you. Even with my questions, I still choose to believe in you. And I need you. I need your forgiveness in my life. I admit that I've messed up. And I admit that I am messed up. And I'm asking you to forgive me and to change me. I'm asking you to live in me and to make a different person out of me. Instead of living for me, I want to learn to live for you. So the best I know how, I'm handing my life over to you. Thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me. God, I thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. I thank you for the gift of your spirit that you send to begin to make us new the moment that we open ourselves up to you. And I pray that you would help us now, for some who have just said yes to you, to begin to live that out and to to first of all do that by sharing that with others around us. Lord, teach us to live worthy of you and to make a difference in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Hi, thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.